The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Judy Foreman, is a nationally syndicated health columnist whose columns have appeared regularly in the Boston Globe, Los Angeles Times, and Dallas Morning News. She has a master's degree from Harvard Graduate School of Education, served as a fellow in medical ethics at Harvard Medical School, and has been the host of a weekly call-in radio show on healthtalk.com. She's here today on Health Watch to talk about her new book, A Nation in Pain, Healing Our Biggest Health Problem. Welcome to Health Watch, Judy Foreman. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here. So as, as your title suggests, our nation's biggest health problem, how exactly large is the problem? <laughs> it's exactly very, very large. The number um, is officially 100 million Americans living in adult pain. And that number comes from a very prestigious source, which is the Institute of Medicine, which your listeners probably know is part of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, and the number of 100 million actually is probably an underestimate because it doesn't count kids, it doesn't count people in the military, and it doesn't count people in nursing homes. So it is a very large number. People are usually shocked when they hear it, but um, it's bigger than cancer and heart disease and diabetes all combined. I should say that in this 100 million, um, you know, there's a, there's a degree of suffering. Some people have relatively moderate pain, but an estimated 10 to 30 percent, so that's a sizable chunk of people, are living in severe disabling pain. So it really is a big problem, but it's kind of like a hidden epidemic. A lot of people don't think about it. So given that it is so widespread, so common, why, why is it that doctors seem to know so little about managing it? because they don't learn much about pain in medical school is the short answer. There was a very good study a couple years ago by Johns Hopkins University researchers, and they looked at 117 medical schools across the country in Canada, and they found that the median number of hours spent learning about pain over four years of medical school was nine. That's, that's not very many, given that pain, chronic pain is the main reason people wind up going to doctors in the first place. So the, the really big infrastructure problem, or one of two that I see, is the lack of pain education in medical schools. And I would kind of challenge your listeners to, um, next time they go to the doctor, you know, ask your doctor, um, you know, just in a nice way, how much pain education he or she got in medical school. And they'll probably be embarrassed and look a little sheepish and say, God, you know, practically none. Um, I've been doing that with my own doctors, and, you know, they all kind of admit. In fact, in surveys, doctors say that they're very concerned that they don't know as much about pain as they wish they did. And why would you think that medical schools wouldn't teach it in proportion to um, how often people would see it in a practice as a doctor? I don't think that's how medical schools are set up. In fact, I had one prominent neurosurgeon from your part of the country tell me that medical schools are kind of the last bastion of feudalism in this country, that they're really um, very kind of hidebound and um, doing things the way they've always done it, which is a lot of lectures, and it's very turfy. You know, if you're a professor in a medical school and you've been teaching XYZ for 20 years, you don't want to give up that turf or your your claim on your students' hours so somebody else can teach a different topic. And medical schools, I think, don't tend to organize themselves around 
what brings patients to doctors. They have sort of a more academic orientation, but ultimately that doesn't really serve the mission of medicine as well as it could. One of the more interesting sections of A Nation in Pain for me was your section on gender. And yeah. uh, it was fascinating to to learn that women are not only more likely to get painful conditions, but also more likely to experience more pain from the same condition. And this includes uh, osteoarthritis, TMJ, headaches, neck pain, sinus pain. What are, what are some of the theories why women would be more likely to get painful conditions and also experience more pain? Yeah, and, and also to be undertreated or, or, or dismissed a little bit uh, more often than men. Um, nobody really knows why, but hormones clearly play some sort of a role. Up until puberty, boys and girls have roughly the same amount of pain, and not very much because they're, by and large, they're healthy kids. Once puberty hits, things start to diverge quite a bit. And, you know, like women and, and adolescent girls start to get migraines at three times the rate that men do. Um, same, as you said, you know, irritable bowel, fibromyalgia. Men can obviously get these diseases, but women get them much more, and they tend to get them more intensely. To some extent, although this part is more controversial, even in experimental pain laboratories where, you know, you volunteer and you go in and, and they intentionally put uh, warm to hot, hot, hot stimulation on your arm or make you stick your hand in icy water or do electrical stimulation or tie a, do a blood pressure cuff really strongly around your arm, you know, to induce pain and then see the person's reaction, how soon they cry uncle. In general, women have had a lower threshold for pain, which means they feel the intense pain sooner with the same stimulus than men. Um, and women how, do you, to, how do you sorry, separate, yeah, how do you separate, um, feeling more or less pain from, for instance, the possibility that men might not want to admit that they're feeling the pain? Oh, that's a very good question. And, you know, one of the factors that's involved in that is um, the the gender of the experimenter. Men like to portray themselves as very macho in front of uh, female experimenters. <laughs> but one way that you can um, get around some of that is using what's called F. MRI scans. That's functional magnetic resonance imaging scans. And that's one way to detect what's actually going on in the brain, regardless of what the person reports or, you know, is trying to please the experimenter or, or not please the experimenter. So there are other ways of measuring pain. Um, there was also an interesting study. It was a preliminary study, but, but fascinating in Italy a few years ago, where they took um, transgender people and the ones who went from being male to female and therefore were taking ex, uh, extra estrogen, exogenous estrogen, you know, as medication, um, they started reporting more pain. And the ones who went the other way, who started out as female and, and were trying to end up male and therefore took testosterone, um, became less sensitive to pain. So it, it seems pretty clear that testosterone protects against pain. What's much less clear is exactly what estrogen is doing because estrogen varies, as, as you know, varies widely over the menstrual cycle and, you know, significantly over the life cycle as well. And yet what you would predict, you know, basically estrogen is bad in terms of pain, doesn't always hold up. You know, some people feel more pain during pregnancy, some feel less, some feel more before menopause. I mean, after menopause, some feel less. So it's a very mixed picture. And some researchers are now thinking that the way estrogen influences pain is 
that when the body senses changes in the estrogen level, that's when pain may increase as opposed to the absolute level. But it's a fascinating and still undecided part of the science. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Judy Foreman, the author of A Nation in Pain, Healing Our Biggest Health Problem. Judy, another thing that's sort of mind-boggling, similar to the fact that medical doctors aren't trained in pain, even though they're seeing so many people in pain, is that the basic research on pain using rats and mice is still overwhelmingly done on male rats and male mice. Yeah, can you believe that? I mean, it it, it just, it, it really is mind-boggling. I mean, it sort of makes sense to do a lot of basic pain research in in um, rats because they are a very reliable um, experimental animal, and scientists really know how to do that pretty well without inflicting any more pain than is necessary to do the research. But the fact that they're only studying male rats is ridiculous, and a number of scientists are concerned about that. This is, again, just tradition. People don't like to change their protocols. They've always done it this way. But it really makes no sense. And the old argument that, oh, well, you know, females are too complicated, they menstruate, they get pregnant, um, that argument just doesn't hold up according to the, the top geneticists. Um, and yet it's really tough to get this changed. And then there's some really interesting research on the placebo effect in pain. Yeah, that that is a hugely interesting thing. Um, that is part of my chapter on the mind-body in pain. Yeah, the placebo effect is a very, very strong thing. It turns out even, and just in case your listeners don't remember what placebo is, it's it's essentially the expectation of what's going to happen. And it can work positively if you believe a drug or an intervention is going to work. Chances are you will report that it does work, even if the drug is a total sugar pill. And it can work the other way, too, if you if you're kind of, coach to believe you're going to get a lot of the side effects or a lot of the negative things, you will report more of those too. turns out the placebo effect even works when you tell people the medication or the intervention is a fake, um, which is, it's, it's a very strong effect. Um, and you can sort of use that to your advantage if you can kind of talk yourself into something working, um, which I would suggest actually positive attitude can help, but it, it can't get rid of intense pain. I don't want to leave that impression. Well, let's talk about some possible interventions for pain. Uh, let's start with steroid injections. It's a common thing people get for all sorts of joint and back pain. What does the research show on steroid injections? Well, for, I have full disclosure, when I, I started writing this book because I had severe neck pain myself, and I did get steroid injections in my neck, and I believe they help. It could be the placebo effect. The research is much murkier than that. It, it, it doesn't really show a clear-cut, valuable effect for steroid injections and a lot of other injections, although doctors do do this intervention a lot and do make quite a bit of money from it, frankly. So it's... Um, uh, I have to say I'm cautious about that, even though I feel like it did benefit me. Well, it's interesting because uh, we had Gretchen Reynolds, the health and fitness columnist from the New York Times, on about her book. And she had cited some research that uh, cortisone injections actually increase the relapse rate for injury. So even if it were to cause six months of relief, the odds of you actually having it reoccur are higher. I could believe that because if you're, if you're still, if the injury is still there and you're just not feeling it, you may not guard as much against it or you may 
um, you know, over abuse that particular body part, not realizing that you're doing damage until too late. And then what about exercise? Uh, obviously something that when you're in pain, you, you're, you're disinclined to do. Is there a, a lot of studies on exercise when you're actually in pain and whether you should be listening to those pain signals or pushing through them? There is a ton of exercise. In fact, that's my favorite chapter of the book and the the top thing I could recommend to people in pain. Um, me, you know, I, I felt that same reluctance, even though I'm, I'm an athlete in my real life. Um, but when you have a lot of pain, you have this fear that moving is going to make it worse. And there's actually a name for this fear. It's called kinesiophobia, which is basically fear of movement. The truth is that in most cases, the vast majority of cases, exercise does way more good than harm. It's really good for preventing a lot of types of chronic pain, and it's really good once you already have it. And we're we're basically talking here chronic non-cancer pain. And, you know, you end up, I went to something that people sort of jokingly call boot camp at one of the hospitals here in Boston, and they put you through your paces. They made me do exercises that I was sure were the exact wrong thing to do for my neck, and I got better. And a lot of people get better. In fact, it is the closest thing we have to a magic bullet for pain, but it's really tough to get people to do it. But um, if people read my book, you'll see some inspiring examples of people who really have um, made their pain a lot better, and exercise seems to be what did it. And we should be clear that this is good for chronic, like say chronic back pain, for instance, but may not be good for an acute injury. Yeah, I think, you know, to some extent, you know, paying attention to your body's signals in the acute injury, and that, that's a good point that you brought up. You know, you can wait till it dies down a bit. Um, but in general, um, there's there's quite a – in fact, I mean, you know medicine very, very well. And usually in medicine, the data are kind of all over the place. Getting a really clear finding is hard. With exercise, um, the findings really do – all line up in the good direction. But as you say, you know, if you're right in the midst of a huge attack, you know, wait a little bit. Judy, you have an interesting section on marijuana and pain and about its traditional use historically for pain, but Uh also some of the hurdles around how to actually do science today that could either show its benefit or show its lack of benefit. Can, Can you talk a little bit about the climate that we're in and what we know and don't know? Yeah, well, the climate is changing rapidly. In fact, it's kind of hard to keep up with it. But historically, um, the, uh, the U.S. government has been – it's gone back and forth. Um, but it has it has marijuana classified now as a Schedule One drug, which is the most restrictive category and which means – and this is completely wrong um, – that marijuana has is not accepted for medical use and has a high – uh, potential for addiction. Um, marijuana does, in my research and my review of the whole thing, does have a clear-cut medical potential, and definitely does not belong in Schedule One. I mean, that's that's with the the most serious drugs of all. So, given this attitude by the government, <clears throat> um, it's been very tough for American researchers to get their hands on pure, high-grade marijuana. I mean, if you're a scientist, you you can't go out in the street and and buy marijuana because you don't really know what's in it. So for research purposes, 
um, and also for safety purposes, you really do want to know that the marijuana is pure, that it has the um, the proportion of THC, which is tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the the um, uh, active psychic-producing ingredient, and the CBD, which is the cannabidiol. There's a sort of an ideal ratio between these two, and you want to know exactly what that ratio is in the in the stuff you're studying. And you want to know that it's pure and it, it doesn't have mold on it or it isn't tainted with some other drug. The only way to get that pure stuff is through the government, and they just have been very, very, very unwilling to give it out. Um, they did give it to a research group in California, which found a number of promising um, results from their studies of it. There's even been some studies, um, or I guess one preliminary study, suggesting that when people in pain use marijuana plus opioids, which we used to call narcotics, they can actually lower their doses of opioids. Again, that's a preliminary finding, but it does suggest a, a positive synergistic effect, which could benefit pain patients. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to Judy Foreman, the author of A Nation in Pain, Healing Our Biggest Health Problem. So, Judy, what about acupuncture? You, you go into some details about some uh, encouraging studies on acupuncture and pain. Yeah, acupuncture is um, among the most popular of alternative treatments in this country. Um, I actually I love acupuncture. Personally, I found that it did not help my neck pain, but I'm sort of an outlier on that. It seems m- m- many people are benefited from it by it. And there are some interesting studies, including one big one that was put together by researchers from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute in New York, um, many thousands of people from a number of different studies showing that acupuncture really does work for pain relief and that it, that's far more than just a placebo. One of the ways it seems to work is by stimulating the endorphins, these sort of natural pain-killing molecules that we make in our bodies. And another way is that acupuncture, and this has been shown in mice who presumably are not subject to the placebo effect, when the mice are acupunctured in the correct acupuncture points, their bodies release a substance called adenosine, A-D-E-N-O-S-I-N-E, which is another natural pain-killing substance. So there seem to be some very plausible biological mechanisms by which um, acupuncture would work. Um, I think there's also sort of a psychological benefit if you, if you go for an acupuncture treatment and the the person doing the acupuncture is nice and believes you and encourages you. There's probably an add-on um, mental health benefit from getting that kind of attention rather than a very rushed um, doctor visit where the physician may or may not believe that your pain is real. Well, it's interesting uh, that in the surgery section, it seemed something that you would think most people would feel would be beneficial. The science is actually pretty murky on on an intervention that um, I think most people would, because of its conventional use and its mechanical, easy to understand uh, nature, would be beneficial. You mean back surgery? Uh huh. But sir, you you had an interesting section on that, and it it, it seemed really um, it seemed really pretty um, mixed to negative. Yeah, frankly, it was kind of depressing to do the research for that chapter. Um, there's a whole syndrome in this country called um, uh, failed back surgery, where people get operations that that don't work. Um, sometimes they shouldn't have had the surgery in the first place. 
Occasionally, the doctors may do it wrong, but sometimes it just moves the problem up or down the spine away from the area where the pain seemed to have started. Um, the basic conclusion I got from talking to a lot of uh, surgeons and, and other doctors about this was just don't leap. I mean, there are some clear-cut cases where surgery is the answer, but there are a lot of people who can avoid surgery and probably should. Like I mentioned, this boot camp that I went to, um, there are a lot of people there who might have ended up in surgery but have gone the, the exercise route instead and end up doing better. So I, I would be very cautious about that, you know, given that there are some people for whom surgery is truly the only answer. You, you um, dedicate a good portion of A Nation in Pain to talk about the use of opioids in the United States and, and, and consider them to be underused, which is, goes counter to the sort of common uh, narrative in the media around their use. Can, can you talk briefly about what, what you mean? Yeah, I think that I'm a reporter, so I, I, I hate to say this, but I think the media has really gotten the picture wrong. Um, there are, you know, obviously we do have a, an, uh, a problem with addiction. Um, according to the Centers for Disease Control, we have had in 2010, which is the most recent year for which we have statistics, there were 16,651 deaths among people taking opioids. But what the press hardly ever mentions is that of those, only 29% involved opioids alone. The rest were people taking benzodiazepines or alcohol or other drugs along with the opioids. And yet it's the opioids that get vilified and so too the patients who take them. Like everybody's heard about Philip Seymour Hoffman lately. Um, he was not a pain, he, his behavior was not typical of pain patients taking opioids. He was doing heroin and benzodiazepines and alcohol and a number of other drugs, including amphetamines. Um, that is not the behavior that pain patients usually do. In general, pain patients, and there's a number of studies suggesting this, uh, tend to under-medicate themselves with the opioids, um, can take them for a number of years without keeping on increasing their doses, just take enough to be able to keep their jobs going and keep their families going and kind of get their pain down from, say, a 9 or a 10 on a 10-point scale to a 5 or 6 or 7, which is still not fabulous, but it's enough to be able to function in your life. The actual risk of addiction, and there's a difference between dependence and addiction, but true addiction, most of the studies show that it's about 3% for people who don't have a family history or a personal history of substance abuse or alcohol abuse. And for people who are pain patients who are, you know, have had a sort of clean history personally and in their families, the risk of addiction is less than 1%. So we've really um, got this kind of backwards in the media. And, and on top of that, from what you mentioned earlier in the show, women with pain are going to uh, have a harder time convincing their doctors of of the need for medications. That's a little bit more mixed. Sometimes some hospitals and uh, in a couple of studies show that women are more likely to get the drugs, but in general, women do have more trouble convincing their doctors that they're in pain. Part of that, I think, is that um, women, and this shows up on those brain scans we were talking about. Women's limbic system, the part in the brain that processes emotions primarily, um, do light up more on these scans of, of women in pain. So I think in some very real 
physiological way, women do feel their pain in a more emotional way than men do, and they may present it that way to the doctors. And doctors, in general, don't like emotional presentations of things. They'd rather have a straight factual presentation. But that's tough to do if you're feeling it in a very emotional way. Well, Judy, it was great having you on Health Watch today. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share about uh, your book for our listeners? Well, I just think, you know, if you're, if you're in pain and you're seeing a doctor and you feel that the doctor doesn't believe you, keep going until you find a doctor who does believe you. And if you, I would definitely try the conservative treatments first. And if you need opioids, don't be too afraid of them because of what the media has presented. And if you can find um, a patient pain support group near you, I mean, I think that's incredibly value, valuable. The American Chronic Pain Association, which people can find on the web, is a terrific organization. So is the U.S. Pain Foundation. And again, I get no money from drug companies or any of these organizations, but if people are looking for help, those would be a couple of places I would suggest. And do you have a website by chance? I do. It's judyforman.com, J-U-D-Y-F, as in Frank, O-R-E-M-A-N. And uh, the book is up there. You can buy it through there, or you can just go to Amazon or a bookstore or wherever. Okay, great. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch. A big pleasure for me, too. Thank you. We were talking today with author Judy Foreman about her book, A Nation in Pain, Healing Our Biggest Health Problem. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. And if you missed part of today's program, later today you can go to kboo.fm slash healthwatch, or you can go to the iTunes podcast store and type in Healthwatch one word and pull up the entire archive. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.